This is God speaking to the Israelites in correction. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore, the land will mourn and everyone, everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Bad situation. Not fun. Now, let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. Therefore, you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. So we'll pause there. He sa- he's talking about the normal person, the general man or woman, and then he says the prophet. So to put it into two categories, this would be like the religious person and then the person who follows said religious person. The prophet represented the category of person in Israel that was in charge of guiding the people spiritually. So these are the people that are putting all the work into the education, trying to hear from God, delivering to the people what God is saying, and he's saying both of them are going to perish. Both of them will fall away and they will stumble. Verse 6. And then he says the reason here in verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge... I also will reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. This is a place where God places special emphasis on knowledge to essentially say that the one thing that makes people perish more than sin, actually, is ignorance. Because, and we've all been there, we've been in our sins, and then we heard the truth, we believed it, the ignorance issue is fixed, and that overcame sin, gave us a new life, right? But if you have a person who's in sin, and they're never given knowledge, or they don't pursue knowledge, they're really perishing, not ultimately for their sins, but for their ignorance, Now, this doesn't mean if a person is without the advantage of, let's say, hearing the gospel as we did being raised in a country with religious freedom. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that they're at a disadvantage simply because whether you have knowledge or not ultimately comes down to whether you pursue that knowledge or not. Because you have to reject God first and then reject his knowledge. And any, everyone has the same accountability in this world to pursue knowledge or not. Same responsibility. Uh, In Romans chapter 1, let's actually read that real quick. Romans chapter 1, it's a really good example of this. We all have the same responsibility. Romans 1 in verse 18, starting there, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, what? Suppress the truth. He's, he's summarizing all ungodliness and unrighteousness in a single phrase, which is to suppress the truth. 
in unrighteousness. Because what may be known, there's knowledge, of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were dark, darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And we'll pause there. So before a person ends up with, a fu- with futile thoughts, a foolish heart that's darkened and becoming a fool, it says they have to not be thankful before that. Before that, they have to know God, but don't glorify him as God. Suppress the truth and ignore the knowledge that God has given to them from the creation of the world. So everyone has enough knowledge, regardless of the background they are born in, to be given the chance to find life in Christ. Everyone. And the offense that is being exposed by God in Hosea is that they have rejected knowledge. Same thing that's happening in Romans 1. They suppress the truth. Now, let's talk about believers. Because if you have a believer who is saved, they have the knowledge of God, they've come to Christ, one moment, then they're in the position of having received the knowledge that saves them. The question then then becomes, okay, can that person lose their salvation? That's the first question. The second is how. How does that happen? And that's what we're going to get into next briefly. Uh, What was your comment or question, Jacob? Well, it was in regards to what you just said. Uh, about the Romans 1 verse, but you kind of sure. went to a new topic, so... Well, it's okay. Uh, Acts 10.35. Yeah. Talking about, like, everyone has a chance. I don't know if you wanted to explain that reference. That's the, everyone who fears God and works righteousness is accepted by him. Yeah. Basically, Peter states in Acts 10, this is just a, this closing point on the, the previous topic. Peter states in Acts 10 that everyone... From any nation, he says, if they fear God and work righteousness, they will be accepted. What that means is if you acknowledge God, choose to fear him, make efforts to pursue him by working, working righteousness, he accepts you into the chance to hear the gospel. So people, let's say, for, this is really never going to happen, but let's say, for instance, somebody never actually got to hear the message that would save them. If that were to happen, it's simply because they chose not to fear God. You have to acknowledge God first. You have to acknowledge what you already have inside of you, in your conscience, um, in order to be given that opportunity. So, starts there. Okay, so let's get into the next topic. Believers. Now, the example of this, of how a believer ultimately is turned away from the faith, is talked about in Colossians and Galatians. Let's go to Colossians first. Take a look at this. Colossians. We'll start at verse 6. We'll read through verse 8. 2. I'm sorry. Chapter 2, verse 6. Says... 
As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you. Now, I forgot to do this, but let's look up the, that Greek word for cheat you, because that's a very, very, very important word to define here correctly. Colossians chapter 2. That word means to seduce, to spoil, to rob, to steal, or to lead away a spoil, ultimately from like a battle. When an army goes, destroys another army, and they take all their stuff. That's what it's talking about. So beware lest anyone cheat you is essentially saying, beware lest someone completely rob, seduce, and spoil you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Now this is, I just love this point so much. He's saying, beware lest somebody rob you through philosophy, where they're adding basic principles of the world, philosophies of the world, traditions of men. And then he says, remember guys, that all you need is Christ. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. Everything you would ever want to know about God is found in Jesus. And you are complete. In other words, you are fully equipped, fully furnished, and you will have everything you need in Christ. Now, same chapter, skip down a little bit further. We're going to go to verse 16. says, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of th things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So again, he's restating the point. Somebody who tries to judge you in secondary issues try to force you to submit to laws about what you eat and drink, the festivals you have to celebrate, the Sabbaths that you have to keep. He's saying, guys, all those are a shadow of things to come. It was fulfilled in Jesus. It all comes back to Christ, right? Verse 18, here's the same word. Let no one cheat you of your reward. What's your reward? Yeah. Eternal life. That's the reward, right? Taking delight in false humility, and worship of angels. So if we break this down one by one, it tells you what can cause your reward to be stolen from you. False humility. This is, this is really dangerous. The dangerous one's very sly. All the, all the tactics of the enemy are very cunning. So you got to pay close attention. False humility as one example is... Well, we have to, he actually does, um, okay. He says the answer in a few verses later, so I'm just not going to go there yet. Uh, worship of angels, intruding unto those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Oh, I want to get into this so bad. Okay, I have to come back to it. Now, <laughs> verse 19, and not holding fast to the head. This is the end of the matter. Not holding fast to the head. Who's the head? 
Christ, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. All of us being joined together in a single doctrine that comes from Christ exclusively is how we grow and increase. He talks more about false issues. Skip to verse 22. He says, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. In self-imposed religion, false humility, he says that again, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So what this comes down to, now we'll go back to what I initially skipped over. They have an appearance of wisdom. These are cunning because they appear to be wise. They appear to be true. They appear to be religious. But they're ultimately not. It's not true wisdom. And it's self-imposed. In other words, you brought this on yourself. It didn't come from God. It came from your own mind or someone else's mind. That's what he's talking about. That's self-imposed religion. Didn't come from God, came from man. False humility. Then he says, and neglect of the body. So we'll go back to false humility. False humility is when you do things, usually they're religious performances that you think are the right way of humbling yourself before God. The example he gives is neglecting the body. So there's, a, there's somebody I know who was raised deeply Catholic, and he said that once a year they would have to travel 60 miles on foot to this big statue of Mary. Once they got to the last climb of this mountain, they would have to walk on their knees, carry a little whip, and then whip themselves on their way up the mountain before they would pray to Mary on the top of this hill. <laughs> yeah. Yep. This is in uh, Costa Rica. Yeah. This, okay, so this is an example of, is that neglect of the body? Yeah? You're hurting your legs, you're whipping yourself, and you think you're doing what humbles you, right? You're trying to be humble before God, you're trying to be low, lowly before God. That's false humility, right? False humility is when you do something that you think is humble enough to make yourself right with God, but it ultimately comes from your own works. That's what you're doing for yourself, right? I suppose it's possible that there's some people that have genuine faith, but then that gets into how close are they to losing that faith if they continue doing that, right? Which is what we'll get into next. So that's false humility. What a lot of people do today, and you hear this all the time, especially with all the people that I talk to in evangelism, you come to people everywhere, whether you meet them on the street, what have you, you talk about the gospel and you say, hey, you know, the Bible says, Jesus said that we have to repent, believe the gospel and follow Jesus to be saved, right? And people say, well, I mean, nobody's perfect. Everyone's a sinner. How many of you guys have heard that before? Right? Everyone's a sinner. Nobody's perfect. That's also a form of false humility because it's a cop-out of repentance because you believe that it's more humble to say that we're all sinners and therefore you justify sin because you think you'll never be able to repent anyway, right? 
So you create an excuse to not repent because you believe the gospel says you're supposed to stay a sinner in order to stay humble. But that's not what the Bible says. In fact, the greatest show of humility is walking in repentance, walking in righteousness, but knowing it's not you that gives you that power, but God. You're acknowledging the power of God to make you righteous. That's humility. If you continue in sin and say that you don't have to repent because we're all sinners anyway, that's false humility. And that will keep a person unsaved. Amen? Did you have a comment, Jolene? Yeah. The scripture, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and then people hang their hat on that one. And exactly. They, so that goes back to what you were saying, that without wisdom, without knowledge, then they perish. Correct. So, yeah. Right? Without wisdom, without knowledge. That's still an important verse, right? All have sinned and fall short, right? But that scripture is talking to people who are coming to Christ. He's trying to say, hey, you can't get into heaven on your own works. You have to admit to being a sinner. That's what 1 John chapter 1 is trying to say too. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. You have to come to Christ admitting your sin. But then if you create that into justification to continue in sin, thinking you don't have to repent because you're always going to be a sinner anyway, that's false humility, right? Now, remember, we're talking about things that cheat you of eternal life, that spoil you of it, okay? One of them is false humility which includes neglect of the body. Then he says earlier, the worship of angels or intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Worship of angels is a category that simply means you start putting your focus on creations of God, but it's not Christ, ultimately. He says worship of angels because it was very common back then. It still is to this day where people get into all of these side topics or side issues that have to do with angels and demons. And before you know it, they're watching hours of videos on YouTube about angelic appearances and demonic appearances. And I have to pray this way and this much to make sure that I see an angel or whatever, right? That's the worship of angels. Now, most people will say, well, I'm not worshiping an angel. I'm not, I'm not like praying to an angel. I'm not, you know, singing a song about angels. I'm not worshiping them. But worship is not bowing down prostrate and singing a song. Okay? That's not what worship is. Worship is about the attention and affection of, you, of your heart, what you set your mind on, and what you're submitted to. That's what worship is, right? For example, Romans 12 says that your reasonable worship to God is to give your body as a living sacrifice. When you yield yourself to something, that's what worship is, right? So yielding yourself to God as a sacrifice to him is what it means to worship him. If you yield yourself in submission with your thinking, what you think about, what you meditate on, what kind of doctrine you submit yourself to learning, that's also worship. So, He's saying, and it's not holding fast to the head. So you get your attention away from Jesus and you start thinking about studying, meditating on angels, demons, generational curses, right? That's what you're setting your mind on. That is a worship of that thing. Now it's important, yes, to learn about the whole counsel of God. You should learn about everything that the Bible says. But the question you got to ask yourself 
is, am I holding fast to Christ or am I holding fast to one of these secondary issues? And that's how people can end up deceived. It starts there. They're not holding fast to the head anymore. So then he says, intruding into those things which he has not seen. And this is really a matter of, think about it this way. You're getting into a topic that is not clearly evident in scripture. It's not clearly evident in Christ. It's like somebody comes up with this doctrine. They don't really have scripture for it, but maybe they've had a dream or a vision or whatever. And it's, it's not evident. It's not seen in that sense. Then you turn it into this massive issue and that's all you put your time and attention to and that's all that you study. And it says that that is being puffed up by a fleshly mind. So if you really boil it down, how do you know you're holding fast to the head? Make sure your doctrine is grounded in scripture. Make sure that something you're believing is evident in scripture, confirmed by the word of God. Make sure that you're holding fast to Christ first because he's the one in whom the fullness of the Godhead exists. You'll have everything about God you need to know if you're holding fast to Christ. If you get away from your focus on Christ and you get away from what is evident in Scripture, that's what makes you vulnerable to be led away into all of these false doctrines. And they may start true, but what makes them false and what makes them cheat you of your reward is that you're no longer focusing on Christ anymore. Yes? Is that failure? What do you mean by failure? So like what I Okay, so what I mean by like failure, like if you like go away, does that mean like you're not like you're just disobeying God or whatever? Or like what the Bible says if you're going away? Yes. <laughs> Short answer, yes. So well, this is actually what we're going to get into next. Um, but yes, when, when we depart or leave what Scripture says is truth, we get into false doctrines and things like that. Yes, it's a form of sin. It's a form of disobedience. And what it leads to is even worse, which is you know, what we're getting into now. And the issue is that the reason why this is so deceptive is because, let's go to Galatians next, by the way. The reason why this is so deceptive is because you think you're okay. You think you're in the right because you might find these issues somewhere in the Bible. You might have a reference to, but it's not explicit. You just start getting into it. There's a lot of other Christians around me that believe this. So I'm going to get into it. And you, you don't think you're in sin because it's still Christian, right? But what it leads to is where you actually see the failure, if you'd use that word, uh, coming into play. So, I'm just going to read a few short verses in Galatians where Paul emphasizes this point. Let's go to Galatians 1, verse 6. It says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. In other words, he's saying there's not more than one gospel, it's just one. There's only one that saves you, 
which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Now this is really powerful because my favorite part of this passage is where Paul says, even if we come back to you saying a different gospel, then let us be accursed too, right? So this would be like, for example, let's say you had some kind of renowned teacher who was famed for, let's say, being really accurate biblically, they're preaching the truth, and then one day they turn around and say, actually, I believe this now. If you put your trust in the person of the teacher rather than scripture, then if that teacher changes his mind about something, is no longer teaching the true gospel, then you might end up being led away with him or her because you're attaching your sense of truth to the person rather than the content of the word of God, right? So Paul, he's an apostle. So he's, Paul is one of the individuals that Christ entrusted the authority to deliver to the church what the saving gospel was and is. And he's saying, hey, even in the position that I stand in how Christ has entrusted me with this authority that I'm using for, ed- for your edification, he's saying, if I even come back saying something different, then you should tell me I'm going to hell. Right? So he's very, very serious about the first message that he brought to them. There's a similar verse. And uh, we'll stay in Galatians, but I'm just going to read this off to you. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says something similar. It says, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Why do you think in Christ it's simplicity? Greek word means singleness. It's a singularity. Why does he call it simple and single? Yeah? Yeah? It's all there is. Yeah? And remember in Colossians, he said that it's all about holding fast to the head. All the fullness of God is in Christ. So you got one person who encompasses it all. That's what makes it simple. You don't have to get into all these strange doctrines. Right? So then he says, For he... For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. He considers that a danger. One of the things that Christian put up with the most is when somebody comes preaching the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and Jesus the Son of God, but the way that they define those characters is different. They come saying the right name, but with the wrong belief. And we put up with it because, oh, well, I mean, they're, they're saying the right thing. They're saying they believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're saying they believe in Jesus. And that's why it's so dangerous because that's what we miss most of the time. It can be just as and even more dangerous because of how cunning that is. So he's saying pay attention to that. So back to Galatians. Keep going. Verse 1 of chapter 3 of Galatians. He says, O foolish Galatians, 
Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And we'll pause there. Just looking at a passage in Galatians 2. I just want to see if I want to read that one as well. Yeah, let's do that. So if you go to chapter 2 in Galatians, he says, verse 4, False brethren secretly brought in, who came by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Why do you think Paul is so strong in saying that if somebody comes in bringing false doctrine, they wouldn't even let him continue for a single hour? Cancer? Yeah. What does it cheat you of, though? Right. Yeah, freedom in Christ, liberty, but the reward remembers eternal life. This is a life and death issue here he's talking about, right? That's why he's so aggressive about it. Okay, so then if you go back to chapter 3, Paul is the strongest in Galatians than he is in any other book or any other epistle that he writes. When he writes to first the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, he's addressing a sin issue, talks about a person in sexual immorality. He gives an address there, but he does not use stronger language than he does in Galatians. Because in Galatians, he's dealing with false doctrine. He's exposing it, and he's stronger about that than he is about anything else, which is a good piece of advice to us about what we should be strong about. Right? Then, if you continue in Galatians, let's start uh, chapter 4, verse 17. Sixteen, actually. Galatians 4.16 says, Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They, he's referring back to these false teachers now, he says, they zealously court you, but for no good. He's using a term that's trying to make a person attracted to you, right? But for no good, yes, they want to exclude you from the church so that you may be zealous for them. This is an, an effort where these teachers want the people to be loyal to them rather than to Christ. That's a, it's, it's a good sign, indicator there, is this person who's teaching said things, uh, referring to false doctrine, are they trying to win you to themselves or to the truth, to Christ, right? Watch out for that. Verse 18, it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Go to chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. 
Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. By blank, you are saved through faith. By grace. If you fall from grace, you fall from being saved. Because you're only saved by grace. Right? For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You ran well, who hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. So I'm going to go backwards a little bit here. Most of us in this room will probably say, okay, well, Paul's talking about circumcision. Circumcision is about keeping the law, because if you became circumcised, you made a commitment to keep the law of Moses. That's what circumcision was back then. Now, for us, we'll say, I mean, like, okay, we're not, we don't have anybody in our congregation or our fellowship saying we got to be circumcised. That was kind of a Jewish thing. That's, that's not really floating around, so why do we got to pay attention to this? Here's why it's important. There's modern equivalents of circumcision today, and what you, you probably have heard most of the time, what I know I have heard most of the time, is when it comes to baptism. The Bible says in Colossians 2 that when we're baptized into Christ, that is the circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. That's what baptism is. It's, baptism is the new covenant equivalent of what circumcision was supposed to be. Romans 4 says circumcision was meant to be a seal of righteousness by faith. Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. And circumcision was meant to seal or confirm that Abraham was made right with God because of his faith that he put in God, not in the act of circumcision itself. What happened was people back then were putting their trust in circumcision itself. They were saying the physical act of cutting off the flesh was what made me right with God. The equivalent today is people get baptized or confirmed, what have you, and they go, oh, I'm good. I'm baptized. Right? How many of you guys have heard somebody say that before? They think they're good because they were baptized or they were confirmed, whatever. Right. This is what people do today. Now, outside of that, this simply means anytime a person presents a certain action that is a work that they do, that they think is what saves them. That's the danger Paul is talking about. Because as soon as you start saying this work saves you, then you're in debt to do every other work, which is impossible, which is why you can't be saved believing that. So if you think there is a work that you do that saves you, that's the danger. And he says this, just as Colossians states, is that it makes you estranged from Christ and fallen from grace. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be estranged from Christ. Not a good deal, because only Christ saves. Yeah? This is like, you hear people say, like, when they baptize a baby, and then the baby grows up, they're like, oh, I was baptized as a baby. And that's, like, what my family was like. And then I just combat my parents, like, it's okay. My, his people perish due to lack of knowledge. So, like, this whole 
thing is very, very like into what a lot of people probably deal with. Yep, yep. A lot of you will deal with this. You talk to more people, the more you realize how many people believe this. It's really quite crazy. Okay. Next. Let's go to Timothy. First Timothy. First Timothy, chapter four. Verse 1, focusing on the importance of what you believe, the importance of doctrine. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So he's exposing one thing that causes a person to depart from the faith. So they're no longer in Christ anymore. They're not saved anymore. In order to depart from the faith, you, have ha you had to have been in it first. And how do they depart from it? They give heed to what? Deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. There's doctrine here. Deceiving spirits who inspire doctrines, demonic doctrines. Verse 2, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, Forbidding to marry. Now, this is interesting. He gets into what these doctrines are. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, I remember when I first read this, and I paused where he said doctrines of demons. I thought, okay, this is going to be really intense. He's going to say something crazy about what demons are going to teach. And I'm thinking, like, they're going to tell people to worship the devil and, a, you know, a bronze bull and the big parties. And that, this is what I'm thinking. That's in my mind, right? And then he says... No, doctrines of demons is people who forbid you to marry, which is something God says you can do, that God authorizes and blesses. And then he says, command you to abstain from foods which God wants you to receive with thanksgiving. These doctrines of demons are forbidding things that God wants you to enjoy. Like getting married and eating delicious food. Right? <laughs> so, when and understand the motive. The motive is that people are saying, hey, you got to stop doing this. You can't eat this, can't eat that. Now, what it causes you to do is to put your trust in, oh, well, okay, then that means I, I got to work to earn it. There's certain works that I have to do that are not works that are in the covenant of God. They're not in scripture. It's not what God has said to do. It's like regurgitations of the prohibitions in the law of Moses, but that are resurrected in the new covenant. And people start telling you, no, you got you to do this, 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 and this. Right? And there's people all over the place that are doing this and they don't realize it. So, and he says this, these doctrines are coming from those who give heed to deceiving spirits and who have departed from the faith. So if these are those who've departed from the faith, then that means what they believe and what they're teaching you is something that will cause you to depart from your faith. This will cause you to lose your salvation. Right? Giving heed to doctrines that teach you to put your trust in religious works that you do. So very, very important that we pay attention to that. 
Verse 4, he says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Verse 6, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables, and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. For this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. Skip to verse 13. He says, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Verse 16. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Taking heed to yourself and the doctrine, what you believe is what saves you and those who hear you. There is nothing that leads people astray more than false doctrine. And you have to be really careful about it because something that you teach that's false that leads somebody astray isn't going to start with them immediately denying Christ. It just, it doesn't happen that way. It's slow. It's gradual. The word is pernicious. That means it has a slow, gradual, decaying effect. It's cunning and that it starts small and it can begin as getting getting someone to put their attention on something that is not Christ. That's how it starts, always. They get their attention on something that's not Jesus, they become vulnerable. What happens then? They start to yield to deceiving spirits. Then they yield to those deceiving spirits. Then they get into doctrines of demons. Then they get into all these other issues, and eventually it causes them to depart from the faith. But it starts with a seed, right? So that means if that's how losing salvation starts, then maintaining it, is preserved through taking heed to yourself and to the doctrine. That's what you believe, making sure it's pure and stays focused on Jesus himself. Yeah. Okay, can I give a really subtle example? Sure. There's a very popular episodic television show right now by Christians, for Christians, and so many times they have the character of Jesus Christ correct, And yes, he's shown as loving and forgiving and understanding and compassionate, all these great things. But we watched one episode recently, Ron and I, and Ron's comment was, just a little bit of crap in the brownie makes the whole pan of brownies bad. (laughs) (laughs) He's the analogy guy. And I was like, ugh. (laughs) And now... They have one thing especially wrong about the character of Jesus Christ. And so we have to know the doctrine because they're bringing in all these people, praising it and loving it. 
And if you don't know your Bible and the character of God, that he is healer yesterday, today, and forever, it is a false doctrine that will suck you into the vortex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's how it starts. Here's, uh, I'll, I'll let you go next, Alex, just one second. One thing that just stood out to me in what Marcy was saying just now is I think about it, it's not always the content of, let's say, it's a television show. One thing that I've noticed is people, because all this really good Christian content is put out there that's, you know, more healthy to watch, it's even a danger, sometimes even a greater danger, simply to hinge your faith or the continuance of your faith on, oh, I watch good Christian content, right? Like, I get my fill of the word by watching these television shows, right? And all of a sudden you replace scripture with a show. And you don't think you need any more than that. When Timothy says, give attention to, read what well, he says, reading. Give attention to reading. You gotta read. It's really important. Alex, yeah. So a couple a couple minutes ago you were talking about DK, like once like nothing causes DK faster. Mm-hmm. And it's like if you look at any kind of like organic matter, like say like metal or anything, when DK starts, the only way to get rid of it is to completely cut it out or burn it off. And that's mm-hmm. what the Lord says, like burning out what is bad. Like the it talks about throwing branches of a tree into the fire. Mm-hmm. So it's like that's a good correlation. It is. Uh, just to like piggyback off that too, uh, I believe it's in somewhere in First Corinthians where it's talking about like the foundation that you're built on, especially with like false doctrine. Like, it'll get exposed quick, you know, especially if you're in like the presence of the truth. Dangerous place, man. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that happened to Ananias and Sapphira, and they got exposed, and they died. <laughs> you know. Go for it. Uh, I was just going to ask, so I was thinking about this when you were talking about, like, just in general, um, like, in, I think it's Revelation when Jesus talks about, like, uh, lukewarm Christians, and also, like, I think I think they say, like, Lord, Lord, and, like, not all who say that to me will be, like, led in my kingdom. Is that talking about, like, people who genuinely believe they're doing the right thing, but they're, like, misled, or is this, like, people who are misleading and they know it, or, like, do you know who that's talking about specifically? Well, you got two scriptures you mentioned. It can be a different answer between those who are lukewarm and then the believers that Jesus, or I wouldn't say believers, the people that Jesus talked about that said they would come to me saying, Lord, Lord, but that he said he never knew them. So there's there's kind of two different answers. Which one of those scriptures do you want your question to focus on? That one? Okay. So, yeah, Matthew 7, Jesus talked about this. He says there many will come to me in that day. He's talking about the day of judgment. and says they will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we work signs and wonders in your name and cast out demons in your name and prophesy in your name. And he says, depart from me. I never, never knew you, those who practice lawlessness. So he's saying there was never a point when I knew you. Now, I suppose it's possible that he treats them as if he never knew them, even if they did know him before. That's a possibility. But it seems most likely just in the text itself that he's talking about people who were able because of the name of Jesus and Something else that they believed in, whatever it was, they were able to work signs, whether they were true or fabrications, that made them believe that they were right or in Christ, and they found out they were wrong afterwards. But the one key thing he says is that they practice lawlessness. So this is somebody who have, they have some good in their life, they have the confession of the right name, they even have some what appears to be miraculous works, but the practice of lawlessness means it's hypocrisy. They're still practicing sin. And that's what Jesus is talking about. It's where you 
include or incorporate some of Christ into your life, but you continue practicing sin without repentance. That's ultimately what it appears Jesus is talking about. That would be my answer to that. So I want to go back to uh, the question that you brought up, RJ, at the beginning. Why don't people, once you come to the knowledge of the truth, why is it hard for us to believe it? Now, it all comes down to the process that the, the process of decay or the process of departing from the faith that happens even for those who lose their salvation. When, and to go to like a metal and fire analogy, I know because I have some experience in blacksmithing, it's one of my hobbies. And I know that when it comes to steel specifically, if you have a steel that isn't pure, so it has a lot of impurities in it, and you try to make that into a sword, and as soon as you put it through the ringer, start actually using it, it breaks very quickly. Because you have all these impurities that mix with the content of the steel, and it, it can cause fracture points, weak points, so on and so forth. Part of the forging process is that actually putting it through the fire, what it does is it causes the impurities, which really don't like the heat, to rise to the surface, and they actually flake on the surface of the steel, And then when you scrape it off with a brush or when you hit it with a hammer, it causes those flakes, those impurities to fall off. And I'm using that as an analogy to say that when we have mixtures of false with true doctrine, it weakens us because that's actually the process of leading a person to departing from the faith. It's not going to start with them immediately denying Christ. It starts with just those weaknesses. It starts with those impurities. So one of the reasons, just to start there, why people have trouble actually having confidence in what they believe is because what they believe is not totally true. It's partially false, or it's false here and there. There's a little bit of falsity in it, and that creates those weaknesses. Another thing is the Bible says that if your heart condemns you, that you won't be able to have confidence before God. Most of the time, that simply means that you have a person who's in Christ, they, and let's say they're, they're genuinely saved, but they know there's an area of need in terms of repentance in their life, and they're not prioritizing it. And what happens is it causes your heart to condemn you, or you feel sorry about it, you feel, uh, let's say, guilty or shameful about it, or it just simply weakens that confidence, and it makes it hard to do the works that God has called you to do because of that, that heart. Now, then he says... That if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. And that's a statement that simply says that when you are at a place in your faith where your heart no longer condemns you, that gives you confidence. So if you want to have confidence, it's important to put that work into understanding the doctrines in Scripture that talk about your freedom from sin, that talk about repentance, that talk about your, the, being the new creation in Christ. Those Scriptures which we went over a few weeks ago, Those are the truths that start to birth that confidence in you. Because when your heart gets to that place, again, where it no longer condemns you, that's where confidence is. And so that's just another example. Another thing can just simply be simple growth. There is a growth in faith. And it takes time. It takes a lot of time. And that requires patience. There are things that we may want to accomplish, things that we may want to be able to do in terms of following Christ, that we may not be able to do at the moment. And in many cases, it's simply because we just need to commit 
to that relationship with God and continue in it and not be discouraged by the time that it takes because it does take time. Jesus described the kingdom of heaven in two different parables, but the one I'm getting into now is, uh, he says, seed that's sown in a field, uh, grain that's sown in a field, and first you have the stock, then the head, and then the grain in the head. And he's talking about the process of time, the process of growth. Now, if you want to forfeit the growth process, just like a farmer, if you plant seed and you're watching the seed like you're watching paint dry and you get annoyed by how long it takes and you're impatient about it and you go and you pull the plant out of the ground and say, grow faster and then put it back in. And then you do that every day, let's say. <laughs> that plant's going to die. Okay, the problem is that you have to be willing to plant the seed and trust that it's growing and not be annoyed by that process. And that's what allows it to grow. And that says eventually you get the fruit. Eventually the fruit shows up, the fruit of the spirit. But if you don't commit to the process of time, then you actually forfeit the growth itself. If you're hasty about it, you want things to happen quicker that can be another reason why you, your faith isn't being strengthened is simply because you're not willing to be patient with it. Do we have a question over here? Yeah. So if a person is still sinning in their life, and like you were talking about the growth process, and that time frame is they haven't hit that moment, right? They're, they still haven't corrected that area of their life, but it is coming. It is progress. It is a work in the works. Is that something that defines a person as not being saved, or is that something that you should cut somebody out of your life because they're not at that point? They haven't fully reached that area of their life of correction, but yet who are we to say that they're not working on it or it's not going to come? Sure, sure. So just to clarify, so you're referring to the part of growth that has to do with sin. A person has some sin in their life, and... You're wondering if, if a person has that sin, does that mean they're either not growing or they are, they just haven't gotten to the place yet where that sin has been totally removed from their life? Does that make sense? Is that kind of what you're saying? Okay. So, oh, thank you. I actually was just thinking about that. Word of knowledge. Prophecy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, to that question. So, it's important for us to define repentance. Because repentance is the word in scripture that essentially means the change of heart that causes a person to stop sinning. Now repentance, just like other things, doesn't always immediately result in an absolute change of behavior. Repentance, the Bible says, begins with a change of your mind. That's actually, that's what the, the, the meaning of the Greek word repentance is. It's a change of mind. Then you have sanctification, which is the process of being set apart more and more, looking more like Jesus. But what we do know is that the sign of repentance, genuine repentance in a person's life, is that there's evidence that their heart has changed and there's evidence of some progress in their life. So if you're seeing progress, if you're, see, if you're seeing a process of repentance, then you're, you're seeing repentance itself. So that really puts us into two categories. If you've got a person who's continuing in the same thing, they might be sorry about it, but it's the same. Nothing's changing. 
There's no accountability. There's no seeking help. There's no, no steps taken to turn away from that sin. That would be not, there's not repentance there. But if you have a person who is showing the fruit of their seeking help, they're, they're putting some work in it, they're taking steps, there's progress in your life, that would be evidence of repentance. And so the, the fruit, like for example, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, it says is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. Now, that doesn't mean that a person who's saved is going to have 100% grown those qualities, but they're going to have them to a certain extent. And they grow more the, the, the more that you're in Christ, the, the more time you spend growing. So that essentially means that if you have a person who is showing that evidence, there is, there is evidence of growth of that fruit, then that would mean they're in the right spot. But if there isn't evidence, then they're not. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sorry, just, just a question. Uh, so... Obviously, when somebody first gets saved and they're, they're trying to grow, what are the things that, is there anything in the Bible that says, like, these are the set things that you should repent from first? You know what I'm saying? And if so, what are those? Yeah. Great question. So, Jesus actually talked about this. When, when Jesus preached his message, there's a few cases where he just generally said, repent. There's two cases where he says, go and sin no more. Now, this, <laughs> this seems a little bit of a high standard because you've got the most loving, kind, and caring person, son of God, who's ever existed. And he talks to people who he knows are in sin, and he tells them, don't sin anymore. <laughs> right? Kind of seems like that's kind of a... Harsh thing to say, it seems like, right? Like, just stop sinning completely, right? Now, it appears that way on the surface, but here's the thing. If you tell a person, well, I mean, quit these things, but these things are okay. Because <laughs> that's really the only alternative. What do you think that does to a person in their mind? How do they start thinking? Yeah, justifying, oh, it's okay, you can... You can let those things slide, right? That's what people do. But if you set the standard at stop everything that you know is sin, then if they shoot for that, they'll miss, but they'll still be way higher than they were if they didn't, right? So the standard always for repentance is to stop all sin. In other words, that's what we should want. That's what we should pursue. If you pursue that, you will always be progressing. But if you justify certain things, then you'll stop progressing at a certain point. So the first thing, if you just start with Jesus' words, the first mindset you're to take on is that all sin is repulsive to God. All of it should not be in my life. And you set that as like, this is the goal, right? That's what I want in my life. Now, in terms of practically what you actually do, it always starts with what convicts you. Because the Bible says the first thing that the Holy Spirit does for the world when he, when he appears in a person's life is he convicts them of sin. Right? You see this when the gospel is preached in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches his message. It says that his listeners were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the brethren, what shall we do? So when a person is convicted, that's that cut to the heart moment, where they think of things that they know are in their life that they need to repent of. And that's usually what comes first. And this is talking about a person who's like, they've never heard the gospel before, especially they're new to it. The first thing I would tell a person if they're brand new to the gospel is what convicts you first? Start there. 
Repent from the things you're convicted of. Then what you tell a person, and this is what Peter told the church, was that they were to continue in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. That's where a person starts learning the word. And when you read scripture, you read a whole lot about things that the Bible says is sin and things that it says to repent of. So if you start with what you're convicted of, then, then get into the rest of the things that the Bible exposes to you, repent of those things, and then you continue in that, then you will continue to progress in repentance. And that would be my short, simple answer for what do you repent of. So if uh, uh, the Holy Spirit is not present in a person's life, um, where do you get that conviction from usually then? Is it from um, current believers uh, and, I guess, that bring conviction, that teach that? Or is it um, something that you would suggest or say that you would have to just come across on your own? Conviction. Well, number one. Conviction before the, the Spirit. Is yeah, yeah. So the Bible says what brings us to Christ or the tutor that brings us to Christ is the law, God's law. So, and actually, so when a person hears the law, that would be God's standard, right? Where God says, hey, this is wrong. And a person is convicted by that. That's actually a sign of the entrance of the Holy Spirit into a person's life. But if a person hears God's law and there's no conviction, that means they might know that it's wrong, but they don't really care to stop. It doesn't concern them, right? There's no, no conviction there. Conviction doesn't mean you just feel sorry about something. It means you actually know, like, hey, like, I am, I'm guilty. I'm condemned. I'm going to hell. And that might seem kind of, kind of intense, but that's what God's law does. It, it, it says it makes the whole world guilty. And that guilt is that moment where you realize, okay, I need to repent. And that change of heart, change of mind for that repentance is what brings the Holy Spirit into a person's life. So I would say it's got to start with God's law. That's something you got to show to a person. But then also it can be as simple as when you're interacting with people, uh, you know, if you're talking about unbelievers, for example, and, and you're just living your life, you're upholding your standard, you're, you're living a pure life, and you have those unbelievers that are around you, and they know, hey, this person lives differently than I do, right? And they they feel kind of bad about it. Like they think about their habits and they go, man, like this person's not doing the same stuff I'm doing, right? That's another point of, oh, wow, I get a big cup now. <laughs> Thank you. That's another thing that can bring conviction to somebody. You've got the standard of your life compared to another person's that makes them feel convicted. You've got the presentation of God's law that makes a person convicted. And you've got when a person receives the Holy Spirit, the conviction that they have in themselves. Uh, that happens. So that would be my answer to that. Okay, any more questions or, yes, yeah, right here. I have a question just regarding, uh, like, losing salvation or just as that process. Can you take me through, is this a quick process? Do I watch a TV show once and I'm done? And, <laughs> and then could you clarify as well that, like, God ultimately doesn't want you to and the Holy Spirit's fighting for you? Could you share some scripture on that? Yeah, great question. Yeah, so, no, yeah. Um, you won't lose your salvation if you watch one bad television episode. Um, Here's the way that it works. The Bible says that you are hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So that's in Hebrews 3. I'll just pull up the reference. You guys have that. Hebrews 3, 12, and 13. 
Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So the first thing he says is beware. Then he says exhort one another daily. This is why we need each other. Right? You got to have community because that's how you exhort one another. And what do you exhort one another for? What does it prevent? Being hardened through deceitfulness of sin. So the deceitfulness of sin, and that is what hardens you, leads to eventually what 1 Timothy 4 called a seared conscience. A hardened heart that's beyond the point of repentance is what Hebrews uh, 6 talks about. We'll get into that next. But it essentially means that what sin does in your life as a believer is that it only contributes to you being hardened, right? So the more repentant you are, the softer your heart will be, the stronger your belief will be, the more protected, the safer and more secure that you will be. Anytime you continue in a sin that you know is wrong, it is starting the process of your heart being hardened. Now, this doesn't mean like, oh, my heart's, I'm going to lose my salvation. That's, that's not the point, right? It just simply means the more sin you have in your life, the less malleable, the less tender your heart's going to be. So the more you repent, the softer you're going to get, short and sweet. Now, for, uh, Hebrews 6 describes when a person is beyond the point of repentance. Um, in other words, you've got the beginning of hardness, and then you have the, the end of it. That's in Hebrews 6, and it says in verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which, which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So I'll start with that analogy where he talks about rain and the earth. So he's talking about, let's just use a gardener, a gardener, for example. Gardener comes to his, his, his field, let's say it's clean, it's fresh soil, he just planted seeds. He waters it, he takes care of the plants as they're growing, and his care for the garden causes good growth. That would be the influence of the Spirit of God in your life. You hear the Word, the Holy Spirit's active in your life, and it's producing good, right? He's saying for a field to be rejected, that means even with God's personal care to you, it just produces bad. You grow weeds instead, right? Another example that Paul uses is an analogy with clay. Uh, I've heard it said, I believe this was from, I think Charles Spurgeon uh, talked about this. But he just, the Bible describes us as like a lump of clay. And it says that if you put clay in the hands of a potter and he can mold it, then that means it's good clay. If you have clay that's hard and will not be moved, then it's to be rejected. So the sign of a person that's beyond salvation means even with the influence of God in their life, it actually hardens them more. It produces bad things in their life when God's there, right? Before it gets to that, he talks about how 
It's impossible for a person to repent or to be saved when after they've been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, and partakers of the Holy Spirit, the good word of God and the power of the age to come, if they fall away. It's impossible if they've experienced all that and they fall away to renew them again. So this would be an example of a mature believer. This isn't just anyone. So this is somebody who's, they've experienced the blessings of God. So they've experienced enlightenment to the truth, where they realize the gospel is true. They've tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. That's the gift of eternal life, the gift of the grace of God, the gift of the Holy Spirit. They've experienced the Holy Spirit. They've experienced a relationship with Scripture and the powers of the age to come. That's talking about the miraculous. Right? The, the Greek word for powers is the dunamis. It's the, the miracles of God, where a person's experienced the Holy Spirit on a level where they've, they've, they, they know undeniable miracles. Right? You have a person in that category. If they fall away after that, it's impossible to renew them again. Because that would be the equivalent of crucifying again the Son of God, which is what the Pharisees did. So what the Pharisees did was they experienced all of the Godhead manifest in front of their eyes in the person of Jesus. They heard his teaching. They saw his miracles. They saw what he did. All of that. And they took that person and say, you deserve to be crucified. So they crucified him. So that's what happens to a, or can happen to a person today where they've experienced the son of God like that. And then they reject him. That's the equivalent of them crucifying Jesus again. Right? So that would be a person that's beyond the point of return. And that's what a hardness of heart leads to. It is possible for a person who's saved to their belief to be genuine. They have real faith that's sincere they get into sin, they start to get hardened, they know they're in a dangerous spot, they die, they go to heaven. They made it because their belief stayed, right? In other words, they weren't hardened to the point of losing salvation yet. But what can also happen is a person gets hardened and they do get so hard that they end up denying salvation. And if that person died, then they will have departed from the faith and they will end up in hell. And one moment. And the Bible says that that is like, uh, this is also in, or this is in Titus. It says that although they profess to know God in works, they deny him. Being abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. That's Titus 1, 15, I believe. That's an example of somebody who they might continue professing the name of Jesus their whole life, but in their works, they denied him. So you don't, you don't, when you see a person who's denied their salvation, that doesn't mean they stop confessing Jesus in their end sin. It can also happen for where a person does continue to profess Jesus, but their works have gotten to the point where they've denied their salvation. So does that answer the question, Luke? Does that make sense? Yes. 